0: We're going to continue reflecting today on how the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts you and me here and now. Last week, in conversation with Colossians chapter 3, we said that the resurrection is not just a past event or a future promise, but it's also a present reality, a present experience. Christians are people who have been raised with Christ. That's how St. Paul puts it in Colossians. What does that mean? You might say it's like Christians are people who have come up from a surgery table. Uh, We've had an operation. There's been some organ transplants. There's been some bone marrow. There's a new new heart. Literally, there is new life inside of us. And that new life becomes the basis for our existence. It's the life of Christ in us pressing out through our lives as we live in this world. And that is a reality that that impacts everything. Uh, It touches our minds and our friendships, how we use our... Our money and our bodies, uh, our, time, our time, how we spend our time and our time at work. We talked about that last Sunday, and, and we're going to talk this Sunday about how it impacts our use of material resources and money and, uh, and, and resources and all of that sort of stuff. For those who have been raised with Christ, we understand our material possessions, everything we have not only as good, but also for good, for extending God's goodness into the world. That make sense? You can nod if if it does. Okay, great. You might say the church is to be made up of giving humans. We're people of gifts and sharing, and that's that's the kind of people that Christ calls us to be, people who exhibit Christian generosity. When we talk about Christian generosity, we're not just talking about a nice and pleasant thing. We're actually talking about something that can and has changed the world. At least once a week, sometimes more than that, uh, I get... Email, emails, articles, things like that, that lament the state of our culture. They, they bemoan the hedonism of our culture. They lament the uh, materialism of our culture, the secularism of our culture. They tell me that our culture is in a bad way. Uh, we, they, they tell me that our society is becoming increasingly inhospitable to Christ and his church. Now, when I read articles like that, I often reminisce about the church of the first three to four centuries A.D the church as it existed in the Roman world. Because that church grew and prospered and flourished in circumstances that are far more inhospitable than our own. It didn't just get by, it thrived, it blossomed and bloomed. And so that leaves me asking the question, us, us the question, how'd that happen, why'd that happen? There are, of course, many things we could say and answer that question, but at the least we can say this, it wasn't because they had, that church in the Roman world had amazing facilities They didn't have any facilities. Uh, It wasn't because they had epic preachers that people followed to hear preach because most of their meetings were in secret owing to persecution. Uh, There there weren't welcome coffees and hospitality teams when you came in the door. Nothing wrong with those things of course. I'm glad that some of you serve that way right now. And it goes without saying there was no social media pressing people into the church, right? So why did the church grow in that context? Why did it prosper and flourish? You want to know why? because people were drawn to the lives of Christians themselves. It seems that Christians at that time had four distinct qualities, qualities that should still mark us today. What were those four qualities? Well, one of them was integrity. This is what the uh, historians tell us of early Christianity. Christians had integrity. In a culture of tremendous corruption and graft, Christians were astoundingly honest. Christians also had sympathy. In a culture of... Uh, Uh, that was notorious for violence and brutality. That was the, the Roman world. Christians practiced mercy and forgiveness. And then there was chastity. In a culture that was known for sexual licentiousness, Christians dared to practice sexual monogamy and commitment. And last but certainly not least, there was generosity. In a culture known for extreme selfishness and the neglect of the most vulnerable and marginalized, Christians were radically and promiscuously generous to all people, and especially the poor. to generosity, that's where I want to land today as we reflect on how being raised with Christ, our present reality through the Holy Spirit, reconfigures our attitudes, our actions, and our habits surrounding our money and our resources. This isn't about church budget today. It's about being aware that right now Jesus is here attending to us, and that right now He's working to form us into a people of astounding and robust generosity. You might say his spirit is here to transform our moral DNA. This does not translate into one-off giving at Christmas time. We're really talking about a lifestyle, a habit of life that's marked by generosity. And a lot of us, myself included, may need some help in this department. As Oswald Chambers, who wrote wonderful Christian devotionals, as he once observed, some of us are like the Dead Sea, taking in but never giving out because we're not rightly related to Christ. And we need to be rightly related to Christ in this area because because Jesus basically says, if you are my followers, you will be a people of profound generosity. Profound generosity is one of the ways that you will bear witness to me in a society that is every day becoming similar to that culture in which the early church thrived. That's what Jesus is saying. As we dwell on this central feature of authentic Christian life, we're going to actually enter into conversation with Jesus himself, Jesus' teaching about money. If you read the New Testament, you'll know this. His teaching about money is staggering. It's one of the things he talks about more than anything else. And one of the places he talks about money is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. And it's in this particular context, this text that I picked for today, that we see Jesus going right to the heart of our lack of generosity, of our problems in that area. We don't see Jesus treating the symptoms He's treating the causes. If you want to kill off the weeds of stinginess and graspiness and rapaciousness, you don't chop the top of the weeds off. Any of you gardeners will know this. If you do that, the weeds grow back stronger. you got to get the roots, and that's what Jesus is doing. So what makes you and me generous? Well, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 12, there are three things that make us generous at least. There's God's care, God's kingdom, and God's grace. God's care, God's kingdom, and God's grace. That's the foundation for generosity. So let's explore these things. We'll begin with God's care. If you look with me at verse 22, this is what Jesus says, speaking to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, or what you're going to eat, or about your body, or what you shall put on. This is Jesus saying, Akuna matata. Right? Don't worry. Let go. Now, we always knew Jesus was kind of otherworldly, but this seems to really drive home the point because what he's talking about here is an issue that is very real and very raw for many of us. The Greek term that's translated anxious there, actually, you know, it means anxious. It means restless, angst-filled concern. When that type of anxiety fills us, when it fills me, this is what happens. One of the most common byproducts is self-preservation. We start acting like... We turn inward like turtles into our shell. We turn our resources inwards. We become squirrely. That's what I used to do when my sister would pillage my piggy bank. My sister, Laura, I have three of them. Laura's the thief in this particular story, <laughs> right? I began to notice a depletion of resources from the piggy bank, and that was not a good thing because the money in that piggy bank was for Roger's Matchbox cars. You know, a little bit bigger than micro-machines, right? Matchbox cars. And matchbox cars were my happiness. So Laura was destroying my happiness in my life. So I had to develop a contingency plan. I took the the dollar bills out of the piggy bank, and I hid them around the house in the books, (laughs) kind of like bookmarks. They weren't sticking out the top or the bottom, so you couldn't see them. That was my contingency. That was my self-preservation in the face of this apparent crisis, but it ended up in self-defeat because there's an irony. I could never remember which books I put the money in. (laughs) And the Rebel Homestead has a lot of books. So so what you see is my original anxiety, my original anxiety problem was never really alleviated. And that's exactly how it often is with anxiety about our material well-being. It drives us into self-preservation at all costs, and it leads us to do silly and foolish things. It leads us to mistake our money and our possessions for life itself instead of reminders of life in God which is what they are, according to Jesus right here in Luke chapter 12. When we lose sight of that, we become selfish, and therefore we become inauthentically human, at least from God's point of view. That is all too common in a society and culture like ours. I mean, we're surrounded by financial advisors and algorithms that have replaced financial advisors that tell us if we don't have X amount of money in 14 years, our kids will plummet into irretrievable ruin and we'll be destitute and homeless. And we're surrounded by an advertising industry that coerces us to worry endlessly about our bodies and our clothes and our health. And the list just goes on and on and on. And if you concentrate on this barrage of messages, here's the big point that comes through the world is not okay, and you are not okay. And so we fret, we earn, we hoard, we spend, we produce all to secure our lives. We acquire more and more stuff and better and better technology to secure greater control over our environment. But then there's that irony. Because the more we possess, the more our efforts to secure ourselves increase, the greater sometimes our fears and anxieties become. The stuff that promises to protect us ends up tyrannizing us. There's more to lose. So our happiness remains quite brittle. Have you noticed? So here we are. Affluent, organized, we have no lack. We've got abundant food at every meal. Even if you're out of work, you can find abundant food at many meals for free in this city, UGM and many other places, right? That's how we are, yet we feel overwhelmed and out of control and afraid and anxious. By the way, what I'm saying here does not apply to those of you who may struggle with anxiety that's chemical or neurological. This is just regular old anxiety, the kind that afflicts everybody. It's into this situation That Jesus speaks. And what does he say? He talks about flowers and faith. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. This is Jesus speaking. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, he was a splendid king from bygone days. Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those lilies. But if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more is he going to clothe you and take care of you? Oh, people of little faith. That's Jesus. You see, when it comes to our lack of generosity, Jesus knows the deep root. The root is that we feel alone. We feel like no one is taking care of us. No one is securing our future. And in the face of that, we live like orphans. A spirit of scarcity takes hold of our minds and our fists begin to clench tightly around whatever it is that we may possess. Well, Jesus unmasked the lie at the center of that phenomenon by telling us to look at the lilies and look at the birds that's verse 25 by the way bird watching so far as i can tell is the only hobby that jesus ever commends so maybe it's time for us to take up ornithology like john stott actually he was big into ornithology the point is this look up look out look around and see god see how god is caring for creation the world is a gift given in god's life i know some of you like to find god in nature you like to find God in nature more than you like to find him in church, perhaps. Well, today, God's in agreement with you. You can find me in nature. However, you don't know you can find God in nature unless you're told about that at church, so don't get any ideas, just to make that clear. The world says you're alone. Take care of yourself. Jesus says, we have a Father, we are loved, we are cared deeply for, and everything in creation points to his affection. Do you hear this? Folks, when it comes to our material security and economic well-being, so often a fear is draped over us like a suffocating cloak. We're terrified. Psychologists have a name for it. It's called Money Anxiety Disorder. The acronym for it is MAD, M-A-D. It's that pervasive sense of worry about our finances and life resources that afflicts so many today, and I am a participant and not a spectator in that group. More importantly, money anxiety disorder, which is really a late modern Western cultural phenomenon, is is often far-fetched and irrational, especially if you look at it from a statistical angle. It therefore literally makes us mad. It makes us batty. It makes us fret. It makes us behave in irrational ways. And you better believe in this world there are a lot of peddlers who would profit from that kind of fear. God does not want us to exist like this because it's giving and sharing not hanging on and holding, that makes us more truly human. That's how God himself is. He's always giving and sharing, and to be human is to be made in his image. And so when we, when when you and me succumb to material fear and panic and worry, when we retreat into self-preservation because of it, you know what? We're actually ironically perpetuating the secularism that we claim to resist and stand against. Our actions are saying that we too, we, the followers of Jesus, believe that God is absent from the world. Shame on us, O ye of little faith. That's how Jesus puts it in verse 28. People, you are not alone. I am not alone. We are loved. This world is loved. The kingdom of God is not in jeopardy, and Jesus is never up for re-election. Speaking about money anxiety disorder, researcher Steve Seisgold knows that we cannot simply think ourselves out of it. So, for example, most of us know that over the course of our life, our financial position will change. What we don't know experientially, but what we do know statistically, is that it's more likely to change for the better. But knowing that does not always help us in the moment of anxiety, does it? Because we can't just think ourselves out of it. We have to be loved out of it. We don't solve this problem by focusing on it, but rather by focusing on him, the one who melts our fears. And that is what Jesus is helping us do right now. God has and is and will always give. That's who God is. And when you begin to recognize this in your heart, you will participate in God's generosity, not just as a receiver of it, because God's gifts don't just come to us, they also go through us, which is why the church has always been a place that served the poor, a place where people help each other out materially, countercultural community that labors to undermine the distribution problems that stand behind so many of the material struggles that do plague this earth. Can you enter into this? That's what it means to be raised with Christ. You get a new freedom to come out of the barren desert. You begin to realize that so often it is fear, not scarcity, but fear that robs us of peace and generosity. God is combating the scarcity mindset that loves to take hold of us. That's the mindset that says when you get something good, you better hang on to it because it might be the last time. We're playing a zero sum game here. Scarcity thinking will bully peace and generosity right out of your life. And so Jesus is assaulting that right now. God's continual care, that's the first foundation of Christian generosity. You will become generous as you recognize that. But let's move along and look at a second foundation God's kingdom. Glance with me at verses 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give alms and provide yourselves with purses that don't grow old and with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Jesus is saying here is really a a recap and a summary of something he says earlier in this chapter. We didn't read that, but it's a little bit of a story. Let me tell you that story briefly. It's a story about a man who hatches a scheme to build his own little kingdom. He's already a wealthy man, and then he becomes even more and more wealthy, and he keeps all that wealth for himself so they can feel safe and secure, and then he drops dead. Well, his wealth couldn't help with that, and where he is now, cash doesn't matter there. Jesus is saying, we don't need to do that because God is pleased to give us a kingdom, a kingdom that never ends. We don't have to make our own kingdoms and build our own kingdoms. What we need to do is live as good citizens of God's kingdom, which means just letting the values and the priorities of that kingdom shape the way that we do life. That's the call of Christians. And as this call relates to money and resources, here's what I want you to see, verse 33b. Jesus is not against money, having money, using money. He's against bad investment strategy. Here's what you can be certain of. Moth, rust, thieves, the force of entropy, the corrosion of sin and time and nature. Because of sin, everything that is shiny begins to fade. It's why we have plumbers and mechanics and plastic surgeons. That's the state of our world. And in that setting, we need to be raised with Christ so that we don't make foolish and fatuous investments. I love that word, fatuous. I learned it this week. It means idiotic, absurd, fatuous. We don't want to make fatuous investments. And we're prone to do that, to be honest. It's second nature, as they say. It's second nature to work for and to procure and to invest in stuff and, in fact, entire modes of existence, to set up entire modes of existence that aren't going to last. And Jesus is looking at us and into that situation saying, why would you do that? I don't know if he yelled it like that. Why are you obsessed with building up security and treasure in this present world? It's almost like Jesus is a financial planner with a time machine. He's seen the big view And what's his portfolio recommendation? The kingdom of God. Which is just just to say the gospel preached and community formed and disciples made and forgiveness extended, lives changed and the poor empowered and people prepared for death and for eternal life and eternity. Christians are people who order our lives around this. That's, That's the kingdom in which we invest. Friends, Jesus is not against money and against planning. He's against bad investments. Investments that are obsessed with this world. Investments that assume that this world is all that there is. Investments, therefore, that are very likely to be selfish and self-preoccupied and self-aggrandizing. We don't buy into that. We give. We're known for generosity. So much so that in this city, for example, people pay less taxes because Christians are so generous. It has been said that we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. Your kingdom is expired. Well, that's not how it works with God's kingdom, which is the kingdom we've been given. Verse 32, the word for investing in that kingdom is generosity. Jim Elliott once said, She is no fool to give what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. That's it. Our predecessors in the faith got this. They didn't just understand it. They lived out of it. And, in fact, in the late Roman context, if you look back at church history, you'll see that they ended up turning the world upside down. It's astounding. This message still has the same power to do that. Let me read you a little excerpt from a second-century letter. It's called the Epistle of Diogenetus. And it gives us a sense of, of how early Christians operate in those first two or three centuries. Beautiful stuff here, right? It says Christians... Uh, you know, they lived in different cities, and they followed the customs of those cities with regard to what they wore and what they ate and their ordinary conduct. But Christians also displayed to us their wonderful and confessedly striking mode of life. Because while they dwell in their own countries, they dwell there as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. They have a common table, but not common beds. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the the laws of the land, but they actually surpass the laws. They love all people, even if they're persecuted by so many. They are poor, yet yet make many rich. They are in lack in all things, yet they abound in all. That's a picture of normal, radical Christianity at that time. Those men and women got what Jesus is saying right here in, in Luke chapter 12. They practiced it. The question is, will we? Will we? God's kingdom has been given to us and the spirit is here to lift us into something more stunning, more permanent. That's the foundation for legendary generosity. And my hope and prayer is that St. Peter's will be part of that legend. On we go. A third foundation for Christian generosity in Luke 12 with Jesus' words, uh, we we, we can call this one God's grace. And to be honest, it's all over this passage. But let me just focus in on a few verses. Verses 29 through 32. This is what we read. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and don't be anxious of mind. For all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you as well. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." So once again, we're taken to the doorstep of generosity. That's very clear from verse 33, which follows right after this, where Jesus says that, therefore, sell your stuff and give. Be generous because of that reality that I have just painted. There are many reasons people give, many reasons people in here give. Some people give out of guilt. Voltaire once said that every person is guilty of all the good they did not do. Some of us really feel that. And to make amends, we give, and our giving is almost a form of atonement. Others of us give out of duty. We give because it's the right thing to do. That's the way, that's the reason John D. Rockefeller gave. This is what he said. He said that every right implies a responsibility and every opportunity implies an obligation and every possession implies a duty. And then are some of those who, some of us who give out of pride, right, that we give to feel better about ourselves, to be confident that we're good people. That kind of reminds me of the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in, in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee who went out and prayed these words. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes on all that I get. He was a real uh, the epitome of humility, eh? Smug self-assurance. But here's what I want you to see. All those, there's a problem with all three of those reasons for giving, because in all three cases, you're giving to get. You're, you're trying to get a clear conscience if you feel guilty. You're trying to obtain the moral satisfaction of having done your duty, You're trying to to get a boost in your pride so that you'll feel like a good and decent person. You're giving to get. And according to Jesus, that's the wrong reason. That's the wrong reason. The basis for Christian generosity is gratitude. It's right there in verse 32. It is God's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Let me put it like this. Authentic Christian generosity is grounded in what God has done for us and what God gives us that's the treasure that causes us to stop clenching our treasure. When the grace of God takes hold of your heart, when it really gets in there, your attitude towards money and possessions and material existence will do a 120. Verse 33, where Jesus says, sell and give, that's not just a metaphor. Jesus is forming us into people who freely and radically and concretely give. Give. People who make a dent in our net worth, no matter how big or small it may be, for the sake of the world. Grace makes gratitude, and gratitude makes generosity. That's what Jesus is teaching in this little lesson. But you know what? Jesus didn't teach that. He didn't just say that. He actually embodied it. He embodied it when his body hung on a Roman cross. St. Paul sums it up this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Did you hear that? Everything that we're seeking after is already ours in Christ. Everything that we otherwise scramble after with our money and our resources, what's the the stuff we're really after with all of that? Security? Security? Identity, sense of value and worth, sense of being loved, all of that is already ours in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here, and that's a good thing because the desire to have purpose, to be loved, is not something that stuff can ever really satisfy nor can it insulate us from that desire. Human life does not, the quality of our life does not reduce to stuff, it reduces to God, and it comes as a gift. That's what God did when he became man. And God's gift to us is love unending that will never expire and that will hold us close as time gives way to eternity. That gift came to fruition on the cross of Christ because it is right there on that cross that we see the Prince of Heaven liquidating his assets, divesting his fortune, living in poverty, suffering for our sins, dying our death, and giving it all away to make poor sinners rich. That's the Christian gospel. Christians are just people who are receiving that wealth and living out of it. And we become conduits of grace, and and through our generosity, other people are drawn into the generosity of God. Again, none of this means that we don't have or hold resources or wealth or money. We're not called to renounce our wealth. I mean, heck, if good hearts had fat purses, how much? what a better place the world would be. That's how Victor Hugo once put it in Les Miserables. The call is not to get rid of our purses. The call is for our purses to be converted. According to God, we can, and we should hold wealth, but we don't grip it. We don't grip it. We hold it lightly because we share. We leverage the goods in our life to be a blessing to others. We do that because we are rich in the reality of God, the God who cast out the fears that so often and so easily cause us to grip and clench. That's the basis for authentic Christian generosity. Imagine what it means for us to do life like that. If we were indwelled by that grace, we would change the world. And by the way, that's not just theoretical. What Jesus is doing here is not just a thought experiment. There's a precedent for it. I'm nearly done reading a book on this very topic. It's by a guy called Peter Brown. He's the academic legend that you've never heard of. Uh, In his book, very interesting book, it's called Through the Eye of a Needle, Christianity, Wealth, and the Remaking of the Roman World. That's a study about how Christianity's vision of material existence and possessions and wealth turned the brutal Roman world upside down. Now, to be sure, there was philanthropy in ancient Rome. You can read about that. But that philanthropy, that giving, was spent on games in the Colosseum and entertainment, and it was marked to make provision for people who had Roman citizenship. And all that philanthropy came from the super rich. But as the message of Christ, as the gospel spread from the bottom up, things changed. A culture of scarcity and graspiness and so-called limited resources gave way to a culture marked by munificence. That's the word that was used, munificence. It became synonymous with Christianity. What's that word mean? Munificence means the quality or action of being lavishly generous. And munificence was a quality of all Christians, not just the upper crust, because in Christ all are rich. And so astounding grassroots sharing became the new norm in the late Roman world. And all that generosity, it did not find expression in more entertainment or sport in the Colosseum or perks for citizens only, no, no, no. But rather for the poor for the resident aliens, for the marginalized, for the outsiders. They became the great beneficiaries of God's grace, and that grace extended through the church because those are the people who are going to one day run the show. That's what Jesus says at least. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is God's kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You want to be in that group. Friends, the generosity of Christ has and is and will continue to change the world. So let's take our part in this beautiful thing that the Lord is making. If I might quote Marilyn Robinson, precious things have been placed in our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. So let's make ourselves useful for the work of the kingdom. Let's be promiscuously generous, which is just another way of saying the same thing. Will we be raised with Christ?